Good morning. My name is Brandon. Uh, as he said, we are in a series on uh, the book of Colossians. Colossians has some of the uh, richest, most beautiful theological language about Christ uh, ever written. But, uh, but this week, at this point in the, in the letter, Paul, the author, makes a, a turn and he gets very practical. Uh, gets very practical talking about the way we live as the people of Jesus. And so he starts out um, with families, biological families, and then from there to slaves, masters, and then um, in the end he's going to connect some dots and bring it together. And so here's what we're going to do. Today we are going to look at the practical. We're going to learn from the practical so that we can see what the deeper point Paul is making is and how we can better live out um, that deeper point. All right, let's get started. Colossians three eighteen, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I, I know where I am. Uh, I know that I'm in the West, and I know that opening a sermon with the words, wives submit to your husbands is not very popular, right? So, so if, I, uh, if I went to a local coffee shop, Boomtown probably, uh, and I found a ring, and I sat there, and I just walked up to a random lady, uh, and I just said, hey, lady, I just want to ask a question. Are you submitting to your husband? Um, it's like 50-50, I get hit, right? But here's the key to understanding this. The word submit, it's not the word obey. Um, it's, it's this, Paul, hey, hey, wives, be willing to follow your husband. Um, it's not uh, obey, which comes in later with children, right? So my wife is not my child. I uh, do not assign chores to my wife expecting her to obey me. Um, and I don't ever say, hey, babe, listen, I've got a list of things for you to do. And if you don't do them, time out for you, all right? Like, never once have I ever said that to my wife. And if I said that to my wife, it would not go well for me in my home at all. So why is Paul including it? Uh, why is this in here? Here's why. Uh, Roman households of the day, the, the culture context of the day, um, wives were meant to obey their husbands. They were treated more like property than a bride. And so what Paul is doing here, or what he's, uh, often the, the, the charge that gets leveled against Christianity um, is, man, it just suppresses women. It suppresses women, but that's not what Paul is doing at all here. What Paul is doing is elevating women. He is treating women with an unprecedented dignity of the day. That's why he says it's fitting in the Lord, and that the willingness of a wife to submit to her husband, willingness to follow her husband, is a reflection of Christ's willingness to submit to the Father and to follow the Father. But now he turns to husbands. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands love and do not be harsh. Harsh is it's literally do not embitter. Don't make your wife bitter. Don't, uh, don't make your wife bitter. And so we need to ask the question, how do we then, how do we make our wives bitter? Um, and I think to, to maybe get a window into this, we need to talk about the word love. So in, in the English, or not the English, in English, our, our language, uh, we have one word for love, and it really covers a variety of meanings, right? So my family drops me off on Sunday mornings. They go back home. They come back to the 11. So on the way up here, uh, we played the game the, where the kids go, hey, raise your hand if you love, uh, and so it was, hey, raise your hand if you love Chipotle, and then we raise our hand, and they go, raise your hand if you love mommy, and we raise our hand, and then my daughter, I was thinking about the sermon when she was doing this, and she said, raise your hand if you love me, and I forgot to raise my hand, and she was like, my daddy doesn't love me, I knew it, um, but I wasn't paying attention because I was thinking about this, so bad parenting on my part, my bad. But in the uh, Greek that Paul was writing, and there were three options 
uh, three primary options for love. There was a friendship love, there was erotic love, and then there was what's an agape love, a holistic care for the well-being. And if we look at the words that Paul didn't use, I think we get a window into how we embitter our wives, right? Um, so friendship love. Uh, if, if husbands, if we don't value friendship with our wife, we're going to create that relational distance, that soil uh, that bitterness is going to grow out of. And if they feel like there's no valuing friendship in the marriage, they're never going to experience the agape, that holistic well-being care for them that they're meant to experience. But then there's erotic love, right? If we treat our wives like uh, objects of our sexual pleasure, they're going to feel like objects of our sexual pleasure. And they will never experience that holistic agape well-being that they were meant to experience, which is why practical advice, single men and women, it's why sexual chemistry is meant to flow out of friendship, not friendship flow out of sexual chemistry. That's why we say, hey, listen, don't, don't play marriage before you're married. Right? That, that if you um, start out with sexual chemistry and then try to create some friendship out of that, you're going to always be treating one another like objects. And then what happens if you get married is you spend the rest of your life trying to reverse the way you started. And it's brutal. Brutal. And so why, again, um, because this was radically counter-cultural. Um, holistic love was nowhere on the Roman radar. Nowhere. Um, friendship with my wife, not on the Roman radar. That, that my wife in there, uh, in the cultural um, era that he was writing into, my, my wife was there to be an object of my sexual pleasure, uh, was there to make babies for me. Not friendship? No. Agape? Are you kidding me? And Paul writes into this, speaks into this. And now children, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Listen, I, I want my kids to have fun. Like when I, I'm 38, we have three kids, fourth on the way. So if I, look like, if I look like I'm tired and about to fall asleep, it's because I am tired and about to fall asleep. We, we're at that stage where my wife doesn't sleep. If she doesn't sleep, then I don't sleep. And so it's, you know, long Saturday night for us. But it's okay, I'll go to bed tomorrow. Um, and I, but when I think about like, 20 years from now, when I think about my kids coming to our home, like they're off, they've got their own lives, and they come back and they visit us, and I, I picture my kids like talking about their childhood, I want them to laugh, and I want them to remember good times and playing and fun, but my kids have a job. You know what it is? Obey. You know what my job as a dad is? It's not to make sure they're laughing all the time. It's to teach them to obey. And the reason for this um, is that in the uh, the, the language that Paul uses here, uh, where it says this pleases the Lord. Um, I, I try not to crack on translations very often, but this one is just bad. And so uh, the, when, when he says, um, it's literally, for it is pleasing in the Lord. It's the same way that he wrote to wives, where this is fitting in the Lord. For this is pleasing children in the Lord. The point is that Paul doesn't have a sharp, distinct, categorical distinction between believers and their children. And so when I teach my child to obey, it's part of how I disciple my child. It's part of how I teach my child to obey the Lord, not just obey me. Now listen, it's not always fun, right? It is not always fun. Yesterday, our seven-year-old daughter, our sweet, precious seven-year-old rule follower, like she's like my wife, nothing like me, thinks rules are meant to be obeyed. I think they're meant to be worked around and stretched and we... Uh, it's sanctification slow in my life, but my precious little daughter, um, she got in trouble 
by mama. Mom got onto her, uh, and then I went into the bedroom that she was in and, uh, and just went to go talk to her about it. Uh, and she did this, like, quivering lip thing, like, daddy went, went. And I was just, you know, I was melting on the inside but holding firm on the outside. And, uh, and she just said, when mommy got mad at me, I didn't feel loved. It didn't feel loving. And so I got to sit down and look her in the eye and say, sweetheart, baby girl, you know mommy and daddy love you. Like, you know we love you. We love you like crazy. But it's our job to discipline you sometimes and to teach you to obey. And sometimes discipline doesn't feel loving. But I promise you, sweetheart, it is. Sometimes the most loving thing I can do for my kids is to discipline them. But that discipline in the moment doesn't feel loving. And so if I could say to single parents, and listen, it's hard. Like, teaching our kids to obey is hard. Like, I used to think, how hard is it? And then I had kids, and I found out how hard it was. And so single parents in the room or friends of yours that are single parents, we know how hard it is. Like, we don't know it like you know it, but we know how hard it is. And we want you to invite our par- we, we want our parishes to be able to come around you and help you nurture your kid in the Lord. We want to come around you and help you. It's a desire of ours that we would be able to do that. And so now fathers, parenting. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Saying in teaching your kids to obey, don't crush their little souls. Don't, don't make your kids think, feel, believe that nothing they ever do is enough. Nothing they ever do is quite enough. That Hebrews 12 um, links earthly fathers with the Father, and it says that our Heavenly Father, He Dis- disciplines us that we might share in his holiness. And so my disciplining of my kid is always to have my kids good in mind. It's not, hey, I've got some steam. I've just got to let off my chest. Seven-year-old, you're in my way. It's not, I, it's not just venting for venting's sake. It's that my discipline in my kids might cultivate holiness in my kids, which again, again, disciplining my kids for their good, nowhere on the cultural radar of the day. Like, disciplining my kids that I might get some good for my kid out of this wasn't on the radar. But my kids obey and they do what I say because it serves me and the family and how we, but not for the good of my kid. Nowhere on the Roman radar. And so when we get underneath what Paul is saying here, he's saying, listen, I want your families and our families inside the church to be these radically counter-cultural communities. That's what they're meant to be. And so now we shift from biological families to slaves. 322. Bond servants or slave, same word. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now I want to pause here. I want to read you a quote um, about what slavery was like then because we, we need to be on the same page as what we're talking about so that we can see what Paul is speaking into. This is a quote that in the Roman Empire, people were either slaves or free. Slavery in Rome was not based on race or ethnicity. Anyone could become a slave, and near any slave, nearly any slave could become free. Consequently, the Roman world was composed of these two groups of people who lived and worked together and were distinguishable by their social status. So slavery in the first century, it wasn't like uh, the ethnic race-driven slavery um, that we've experienced in the States. It was, however, dehumanizing. And to varying degrees, 
right? So not all slavery in the first century was the same. There was uh, some slavery that was really akin to just having a job today. And then there were some degrees of slavery that was extremely dehumanizing. This was kind of the, um, in a sense, the religion politics of the day. Like you just didn't speak into this, but Paul does. And so let's see what he says. Bond servants obey everything in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So here's what he says to the slave. Hey, slave, work honorably. Right? Work honorably. Why? Because, listen, you, you're serving the Lord Christ. You're not serving your earthly master. You're serving your heavenly master. So work honorably because you're serving the Lord Christ. And then master, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to treat your slaves honorably. It needs to be treated justly and fairly. You need to treat your slaves with the ethics of Christ. Like the way that you want Christ to treat you needs to be the way that you treat Christ, that your slave. Why? Because you, you share the same heavenly master. You see what Paul does here, what Paul does here is in his day, utterly unprecedented. To speak into slavery, it's a level the playing field and say, hey, slave, master, you both have the same Lord. To level the playing field and say, hey, listen, there's not a caste system of dignity around here. There's not like, hey, you master, like you are the dignified person and you slave, like, you know, you don't really have any inherent dignity and so just be thankful that you get to eat once a week. Like that's not how it works. There is a, um, there is a level playing field when it comes to dignity before the Lord. This, this was an unprecedented call to humility in the master and dignity for the slave. What Paul doesn't do is to condone slavery. He regulates it, saying that masters should be treating slaves with the ethics of Christ. And this would be the foundation, a theological foundation uh, that would flow out into human rights and why the church has led the charge in valuing the dignity of all of humanity and why we, why we, are partnering with organizations that fight human trafficking because we are going to fight for the dignity of the trafficked. I don't know if you know this or not, but Houston is a hub city for human trafficking. And by hub city, does it mean it's like um, just one with a lot of trafficking? It's a hub city where it flows in and it's a central port, if you will, for human trafficking that flows out of. And so we will, by the grace of God, play our part in fighting human trafficking. And the best way that we know to play our part um, is not to reinvent the wheel, but to partner with organizations that are already doing good work to fight human trafficking and saying, hey, what do you need? Do you need manpower? Do you need money? What can we do to serve you as we fight human trafficking? We will, by the grace of God, play our part in seeing human trafficking brought to an end for the dignity of the trafficked. We will do this. There will never be a day never be a day where we stop asking you to sacrifice for the good of the oppressed, ever. Because there's never going to be a day where Christ stop ask, stops asking you for it. And so Paul here, 
He's looked into families, slaves, masters, and he's saying, hey, listen, you, you need to be living these radically counter-cultural lives, affirming what's good, challenging what's not. Why? Let's keep reading. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Why, why is Paul so concerned with the lives of the church? The lives of the church, the, the soil by which we might preach and proclaim and declare the mystery of Christ. That our primary calling as the church, as the body of Christ, is to step in to a culture and a context and declare all that the mystery of Christ would have us to declare. So what is the mystery of Christ? Great question. Ephesians 3 answers it for us. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles, Gentiles not Jews, are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, that through the gospel where Christ would come from heaven to earth to go die on the cross, hang their real nails being driven through his hands and feet for real sin so that he could get and would get the death that you and I deserve so that we could get the life that he deserved, the life that he lived might become ours so that you now can partake in the vertical dimension of the uh, of the mystery that you've been united to Christ and Christ is in you and you are in Christ. And because we're united to Christ, there is a horizontal dimension that we get to experience where we are partakers of the promise, fellow partakers, Jew, Gentile, in one body, the promise that God made it to Abraham where he said, hey, listen, I'm going to be the God of you and your offspring. And hey, look to the stars. It's going to be like that. Your family's going to be like that. When you are saved, when you go from not believing to believing. You're not just saved from something. You're saved to something. You're not just saved from sin. You're saved into the mission of God. You and I, we, local body of Christ, have been saved and redeemed into the mission of God, which is why verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, outsiders, non-Christians. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. We are called to be. We are called to time management. Not simply in our jobs, in our families, but in our lives for the sake of the outsider. We are called to budget our time with intentionality for the sake of non-Christians around us. You are called to think about how you live your life not simply for... um, uh, whoever you're dating or your spouse or your job, but for your neighbors and those who are around you who do not know the Lord. We are called to time management for the sake of outsiders, but we're also called to walk in wisdom, wisdom that requires, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That what you say matters. How you say it 
matters. The phrase seasoned with salt, um, it's uh, the commentators revolve around some words to describe it like it means that our language should be interesting and stimulating and provocative even. Um, But that stimulating speech also needs to be gracious. It needs to be gracious. The word gracious, it's literally um, an attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction, that the way we interact with one another, the way we interact with our neighbors, it needs to be in such a way that, that invites invites a positive reaction from them. And there's a little word in there, uh, a little word that has a really significant point for us, and this is where we're going to camp out for a minute. It's the word always. 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 Hey, Christian, always. Your speech needs to be gracious. And so let's talk. If you've been around for a while, you know that we don't, uh, we don't normally talk politics around here. Uh, we, we don't talk politics because we have a diverse body of, you know, we have Republicans, we have Democrats, we have mushy in the middle, independents like me. We don't believe the pulpit is the place to talk politics. We believe that the pulpit is for the word of God, for the people of God. However, when the Bible brings up something that applies to how we're to live in light of our current cultural moment, we will speak. Where the Bible speaks, we will speak. And so what I want to do is I want to tell you what Tuesday was like for us, and then I want to tell you what Wednesday and Thursday were like for me, and then I want to share with you quite simply where I'm repenting right now. Tuesday, there were three broad groups of people, three broad camps. There was the same three broad camps, right? There was the Republican voter, the Democratic voter, the third-party voter, went and voted and then sat around Tuesday night waiting to see what would happen. Uh, I tried to stay up and uh, watch the results, but I'm 38 and it went way past my bedtime. And so I fell asleep on the couch. Uh, and then I woke up Wednesday and I saw the results. And over the next 48 hours, my heart broke. I talked with Christians who were thrilled with the outcome and I sat with Christians in tears over the outcome. And then I watched those two groups of people go at it on social media. Brothers and sisters united in Christ. Speaking to one another in a way that was anything but gracious. And to be clear, I mean it both ways. It it wasn't one-sided, one direction, we're the gracious and you're not. I, I watched it going both directions. And so like many of you, this election and the response to it has, has created a chance for some internal reflection on my part, I'm sure on yours. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you two ways that I'm repenting right now, what's happening in my heart, and I am in no way suggesting these are ways that you need to repent, but I hope 
simply by sharing them with you, it might soften the soil of your heart that you might be able to see yourself more clearly and see maybe where you need to repent. The first one is for an urban elitism that has settled in to me. I love living in the city. I love it. Like, I love being in the urban core of a major, booming global city. Like, I love it. Like, I look, the closer to the skyline I am, the, the more at home and alive I feel. Like, the, like, some people, the way you feel about mountains is the way I feel about skylines. I just love it. Like, tranquility for me is no kids and a room full of pictures of skylines. Like, I just But if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, there can be an urban elitism that makes our rural brothers and sisters feel third class. People like some of my cousins. And where my thoughts and at times my speech have made my predominantly white brothers and sisters feel like they don't have the honor and dignity that God would give them, I am truly sorry and I'm repenting. The second way that I'm repenting is from continuing to evaluate my minority brothers and sisters weeping before I'm willing to weep with them. Romans 12:15 says, weep with those who weep. It's a blanket call to compassion. It's not a call to weep with them if you feel like their weeping is legitimate. On Wednesday, my wife got a call from uh, a friend of ours in Dallas. I'm going to call her T because she comes down to visit us some and whatever. Sweet, precious African-American girl who was really close with our family. She would spend holidays with us. Every Thanksgiving was with us. Every Christmas Eve, she would we'd go to the last um, Christmas Eve gathering and we'd always go to this little steakhouse and it's the only place open and so we would do that and then uh, usually they would go back to the house and I would go crash this family Christmas party that I wasn't invited to. I just started going to it. And, and T called my wife on Wednesday and the opening line to the conversation was, Amanda, tell, you me, tell me, tell me you didn't do this to me. And too often, too often, my in instinctive and innate response has been, tell me why you feel that way, and if I deem it legitimate, I will weep with you. Which is another form of elitism. It's the elitism of saying, I, I am from such a position of cultural authority that I get to deem whether your weeping is legitimate or not. And where that has been true of me, I am deeply, truly sorry, and I am striving to repent of it. And if we are going to be a people, if Sojourn is going to be a community whose speech is gracious, seasoned with salt, we must be a people willing to look into our own hearts individually and communally and be honest about what we see so that we can repent of what's broken on the inside. Because we are here to be a people who proclaim the mystery of Christ. But proclaiming the mystery of Christ starts proclaiming Christ to ourselves. Which is another way of saying repenting. That we might preach the gospel to ourselves. That we might see ourselves more clearly. That we might 
turn from what is not holy in us. And Paul included the dignity of wives and slaves for a reason, that there, there were Christians that were not treating wives and slaves with the dignity that the image of God deserves. There are Christians who are taking their cues from the culture of the day, and Paul is speaking in and saying, no, not in my church, not in Christ's church, not inside the body of Christ. We will not take our cues from the culture. We will treat one another with the dignity that the image of God requires. And that requires we treat one another with image and dignity both ways. I pray that this is the kind of people we are. That we would be a people who are willing to repent so that we can live counter-cultural, compelling lives as a compelling community for the sake of the outsider. That we'd be willing to repent so that we can be a compelling community whose lives and words display the mystery of Christ. This would be us, that we would be this kind of counter-cultural, compelling community who display the glory of Christ. And if you're one of the ones in the room who feel like your dignity was undercut this week, I want to say this to you, that when your life is in Christ and Christ is in you, you have a divine dignity that can't be taken away by any other person. That one day Christ is going to return and we are going to delight in that divine dignity together for all of eternity. We are meant to be a counter-cultural, compelling community proclaiming the mystery of Christ. But it starts with being a repentant people but where that mystery hasn't shaped us enough yet. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I love you. I thank you for this community. I thank you for this community of men and women where we can come together week in and week out. We can be honest about the brokenness in us. We can be honest about the shortcomings in our own lives. I pray that we wouldn't be afraid of taking honest looks on the inside. I pray we wouldn't be afraid of being willing to see where we need it to repent, and I pray we'd have the courage to do so. And I pray we'd be a community whose speech is gracious to one another. Speech is gracious to those um, who differ from us. That we might display the gracious speech that our Father has for the Son and the Son has for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.